you brought your Bibles with you tonight, let me encourage you to turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 2. We'll be reading there in just a moment. Daniel, chapter 2. We're continuing our study of the kingdom of God, and we've been spending quite a bit of time in the Old Testament as a prelude for our study of the New Testament. This is important for a lot of reasons, um, not the least of which is the fact that the core message of Jesus was the kingdom of God. That was the central message that he preached over and over and over again. And I shared earlier in the very beginning of our study in this series how it didn't pose a problem for me, but I wondered sometimes why it didn't seem that the rest of the New Testament spoke as much about the kingdom of God. And, and in fact, it does. But we sometimes read the New Testament with filters that we need to remove. The kingdom of God was a central message that Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel of the kingdom was good news to the people who heard it. And by our study of the Old Testament, it helped set the table to help us understand both what they were looking for from Jesus and why they were so disturbed by the message of Jesus when he did not do what they expected him to do. So. It's very important, it has immediate application for you and me in our lives. So that was the central message of Jesus. And what we did was define the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, we saw, was not a place. As we opened up the scripture and we read how the word kingdom was used, we discovered that the kingdom was not a place. The kingdom of God was not the church, although the church is certainly produced by the kingdom of God. But we saw that the kingdom of God was an attribute of God himself. And it describes his reign or his rule. And Jesus preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand was saying that the rule or the reign of God is immediately accessible and available to the people who were hearing him speak. So it describes the ruling power of a king, not a place or a people. When we turn to the Old Testament to begin our study, we saw that in the book of Exodus, there was this first reference to the rule or the reign of God. And it surrounds the whole story of the Exodus, how God delivered his people. More specifically, we saw that the kingdom of God in Exodus referred to the ruling power of God in human history. The ruling power of God entering into human history. Colliding with the evil and the powers of this age, triumphing over those powers that were holding God's people in bondage and then setting them free so that they could serve him. As we continued, we saw in the, uh, the story of the kings, of David and Solomon, that God's plan was to grant the experience of his rule now through an anointed adopted king, and David was that king, and he was prefiguring Christ who would also be the son, and he would be a king. And we saw how this came to full expression under Solomon, and how under Solomon this great period of time, this period of peace or shalom was ushered in, and all the enemies of Israel were subdued. And every person experienced health and wealth 
and, and all the measures of what, what it took to satisfy a human heart, all of this was available under Solomon. And under his rule, there was justice and there was mercy. And the expression of God's rule was, was hinted at, was displayed through the kingdoms of David and Solomon. And then we move to the prophets. And the prophets are seeing a kingdom in the future that is going to be something that would put the kingdom of David and Solomon to shame. It is the complete expression of the rule of God where God himself is going to come and he's going to rule over his people. And everything that is not right in this world, everything that does not measure up to the full intent and original purpose of God is going to be put right. And they're seeing this age and they're seeing this time and they're telling people about it. Well, we saw this particularly in Isaiah. Isaiah was the one who saw most clearly that God as king was going to come, that the spirit was going to be poured out, that salvation was going to be brought to his people and it was going to create a new kind of people and it was going to be a new kind of world. But we need to look at one other prophet before we move into the New Testament and that's Daniel. And so I want us to see tonight the promise in Daniel and I, I thought originally we would look at the prophets in one night and so we saw that we couldn't get out of Isaiah in one night so I said there would be a second night and this is night number two talking about the prophets we're not going to finish so there's going to be a third night and uh, we're going to spend two evenings looking at Daniel because there are two chapters in Daniel that I think are very important for us to see. Uh, one is uh, Daniel 2, which we're going to look at tonight, and the other is Daniel 7. And so you can read ahead as homework and read Daniel 7, and I think you'll begin to understand why this prophet and that chapter is so important as we think about the kingdom of God. Now, why Daniel? On your handout, why Daniel? Because he makes the connection between the Son of Man and the coming kingdom. He makes the connection between the Son of Man and the coming kingdom kingdom. This was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. In Matthew, he calls himself the Son of Man no less than 30 times. In Mark, 15 times. In Luke, 25 times. And in John, 12 times. And it always is from the mouth of Jesus that the words Son of Man are spoken. Except in one instance in John 12, 34, where the people said, what is he talking about? <laughs> what does he mean by the Son of Man's going to be lifted up? And that's the only other time that the Son of Man is referred to. Now, Daniel is not the only Old Testament book that refers to the Son of Man. The expression also appears in Psalm 8 and Psalm 80. I believe in both of those references, it's referring to a human being, refers to our humanity. Most theologians and scholars say that the Son of Man certainly is a reference to the humanity of Jesus. In Ezekiel, the expression is used over 90 times, and all of those references are Ezekiel's way of describing himself. And so those aren't references to the Lord Jesus. But in Daniel 7, as we're going to see in part 3, in Daniel 7, we see a reference to the Son of Man. And he's going to come in the clouds. And he's going to deliver the kingdom to the Ancient of Days. And we're going to see that in Daniel 7. But tonight, we need to start in Daniel 2. Now, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. The people of Israel, Judah, 
have been carried off into Babylon. You've heard people talk about the Babylonian captivity. Well, here the whole nation are enslaved by another nation. And Daniel is in a position of great influence. He's in a position of great authority because he is seen as a prophet. He's seen as a wise man, an advisor to the king. But he's just one of dozens and dozens and dozens of wise men. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And it disturbs him. He doesn't understand what it means. And so he turns to the wise men, and he says to the wise men throughout all of his, his empire, he says, I want to know what this dream means. And they said, well, great, king, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. And he said, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. How am I going to know if you know what you're talking about? You need to tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation, or you're going to die. How would you like that? That'd be something. And so all of these guys thought they were going to die. And the stories are wonderful if you read through Daniel 2, how Daniel comes to this place where he says, tell the king, give me just a day or so. He says, and then he turns to his friends, he says, pray for me. And God speaks to him. And then there's this great moment of praise where Daniel praises God, who is the great Lord of all kings, and, and he worships him. And then he's able to go to Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him the dream, and he tells him the interpretation. Look at verse 31. We're just going to read along here, and then there'll be a couple verses we'll pause on and that will be on the screen. Daniel 2, verse 31. Daniel alone was able to reveal the dream and explain the dream. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now this will be on the screen. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands. Now, now pause on that thought for just a moment. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands. So who cut it out? Now, you don't have to wait for Daniel to interpret that to figure that one out. He's going he's gonna to tell us. But, but this is something God is doing. So you have this image, head of gold, has the shoulders and stuff of silver, has a body of, of bronze, has legs of iron and feet that are mixed, iron and clay mixed together. But then there's a stone that's being carved out, okay? Which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Bad day for the image. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the dream. And he says that in verse 36. I'm going to keep reading. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. 
So we know without any shadow or hesitation that the Babylonian Empire is represented by the head of gold. I don't have to speculate on that one. Because Daniel said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Verse 39. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours. And this is the chest and arms of silver mentioned in verse 32. Now, let me tell you what the traditional understanding of that is. And, and I don't see any reason to discount it. The traditional understanding of the chest and arms of silver is that it represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Another empire that would succeed the Babylonian Empire and defeat it. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, will shall rule over all the earth. This is the belly and the thighs. And it's mentioned in verse 32. And again, most scholars say that that's the Greek empire. Verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush everything all the others. That's the legs and the feet. And most scholars in verse 33 think it's referring to the Roman Empire. Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom, that last one, shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So he's got a lot of stuff to say about this last kingdom. But here's what we want to see in verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. No more human drivers here. No more human um, engines. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. So if you don't agree that the head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire, even though Daniel said it. And if you don't agree that the identities of these other kingdoms refer to the Medo-Persian Empire, to the Greek Empire, to the Roman Empire, that's okay. We could add the names of all the other great human empires. We could talk about Charlemagne. We could talk about Napoleon, the Ottoman Empire, the German Empire, the Russians, and even the Americans. But it doesn't matter. The image is describing any and all the kingdoms of this world as they succeed one another. And whereas I believe my first interpretation is probably a good one because it was during the period of Rome that Jesus came, even if it's more figurative than that and refers to just kingdoms that come in succession one after another, the bottom line, the end of all the kingdoms of the earth is the same. There's a great stone that falls and crushes all of them and then becomes the dominant kingdom in the world. Here's some observations about what Daniel is saying about the kingdom of God. First, there are two very different kingdoms 
There are two very different kingdoms. One is earthly and human. The other is heavenly and divine. This becomes crystal clear in the New Testament when these, these kingdoms are discussed and described. But they're two very different kingdoms. And you've got to remember, the people in Daniel's day, they're beginning to hear this for the first time. And they're putting all of this together for the first time. Oh, there's going to be two kingdoms. There's this world, and it has all of these kingdoms that keep whooping up on each other. But then there's this other kingdom that's coming. Secondly, there are two very different ages. Two very different ages. This present age is composed of human kingdoms that follow each other in succession. And they're represented certainly by these four empires. But there's a future age when God's kingdom will stand forever, Daniel says in verse 44. And, and it is this future age that we are to long for, that we are to look forward to. The age that is to come. Well, I'm going to Skip out of the Old Testament for a moment because I want you to see some of these references in the New Testament. For example, Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. It's just, it's written on your handout. You can follow it on the screen. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus is operating with the sense that there are two ages. There's this present age, and there's persecution, and there's losses and sacrifices, and then there's this age to come, eternal life. Matthew 13, verses 39 to 43 in the parable of the tares, the wheat and the tares. Verse 39, Jesus is interpreting the parable. The enemy who sowed them, the weeds, the tares, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, this present age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, then the righteous, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Two ages. This present age that's coming to a close, and then there's this age to come that will feature the kingdom of God. Ephesians 1.21, the Apostle Paul is describing Christ's resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And he says this in Ephesians 1.21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, he's talking about Jesus, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Two ages. This present age in which you and I live and the age to come. So these scriptures reflect the concept that Daniel makes clear that there are these two periods of time. One in which there are successions of kingdoms rising and falling. One in which there is persecution and hardship for the saints that belong to God. One in which there is weakness and sin and sickness and Satan who is the ruler of this world. There is this present evil age. 
But then there's this age to come. So that's the expectation that's formed in their minds. There are two ages. One is going to come to an end, and another is going to be ushered in. Now keep that in mind. Because when that didn't happen that way, when Jesus came, there were a lot of people who were disappointed. They expected, when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, do you understand what they were expecting to happen? Do you realize what they had longed for, what they were waiting for? They thought, this is it. But then he began to teach and explain that the kingdom was coming in a way that was totally unexpected than what they had ever dreamed or imagined. And we'll get to that when we get to the New Testament. I want to make a comment about the use of the expression new age. New age. It's entirely biblical, as we'll see more and more as we get into the New Testament. The devil and the occult in general will counterfeit the truth of God. He will counterfeit the teachings of Christianity. He will counterfeit our understanding of the future. And because of that, sometimes Christians are uncomfortable with focusing on the age to come or the new age. But I want to assure you that it's entirely biblical. In Revelation, you know, there's an unholy trinity that appears in that book. There's a trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And it's a kind of counterfeit of the triune God. And in a similar way, there are groups that teach about a future age that is imminent that we as human beings can usher in. It just depends on the group. It just depends on who you're talking to. But I can remember as a college student years ago seeing a sign on a poster at the uh, University of Texas, and they had this, this group that was inviting you to come and learn about transcendental meditation. And a couple buddies and I, uh, believers, we decided we would go and check it out. And we went in, and we listened to what they said, and it didn't end well. And there was a whole room of people. But when we got through being hecklers for Christ, <laughs> uh, a lot of people left the room with us. But, um, but their contention at the time, and I remember this vividly, um, 18 years old, their contention at the time was that if they had studies and they had research to prove that if sufficient number of people in a community would practice this transcendental meditation, that there would be greater peace and harmony and there were great community benefits associated with that and that if enough people did it, they believed ultimately it would usher in a whole new era of world peace and harmony, a new age. And those of you who are old enough, you remember the song, The Age of Aquarius, please don't sing it. <laughs> and the idea of a new age is not unique to Christianity. The idea of anticipating a future time when everything will be different and pain and sorrow and suffering will be put away is not unique to Christianity. But let me tell you what, it originated in Christianity. And Daniel is the one who first opens the door and helps us begin to see these two different ages. The last thing I want to mention is an observation is that the transition between the ages as Daniel teaches it, as Daniel talks about it, is catastrophic. It's catastrophic. It's a big deal. It is decisive. It is sudden. It is complete. It's another reason why the people who heard Jesus had so many questions. 
Where's the decisive, catastrophic end of this age? And it didn't come yet. And so, but Daniel's describing it in terms of that. Here comes a stone. It's not cut with human hands. It falls and crushes the feet, crushes the bronze, crushes the silver, crushes the gold, and becomes a mountain in the earth. And so it's catastrophic. This um, last Sunday night, I left after the service <clears throat> and drove to Texarkana because we were having the annual meeting of Arkansas Baptist State Convention Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And so I got to my hotel room late. And um, having been on the road, first thing, you know, I visited were the, the bathroom. And um, in the house that we built, we have these unique toilet seats that will not slam. If you push them, they just kind of ease on down. Amen, that's good. <laughs> we saw those and we said, yeah, let's put those in the house. And so they just kind of ease on down. And you know, I live at my house. And I, I've grown accustomed to this. But at 1.30 in the morning on the fourth floor of the Hampton Inn, Texarkana, people heard a loud slam. Bam! It was loud. It was catastrophic. I felt embarrassed. I thought, how do you apologize to everybody in the hotel at 1.30 in the morning? The stone pulverizes the image. It is loud. It is significant. It is catastrophic. It's, there's no secret entrance to it. There's no quiet entrance to the kingdom. It comes in a catastrophic and a powerful way. This kingdom of God crushes all of the other kingdoms. There's no gentle, evolutionary, bit-by-bit, slow kind of change. It is sudden and it is complete. Keep that in your mind as we prepare to go into the New Testament after part three. Our last question tonight, how can we apply Daniel's teaching about the kingdom? At least in chapter two. What can we say about it? I want to call your attention to Galatians chapter one, verses three and four. I'm going to read that scripture, and then I'm going to, um, to make some observations, and then we're going to worship some more and see how the Lord would lead us. Okay? Grace to you. It's one of my favorite verses. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Isn't that cool? Four observations, then we're going to close. How can we apply this? We need to keep in mind first, this present age is evil. This present age is evil. What does that mean? It means it's bad. Now, I'm not denying that we experience something of the goodness of God in creation now, but this is nowhere close Nowhere close to what God had in mind for us and for this world. It is corrupt. There was no sickness when God made it. There was no Satan who was ruling the world when God made it. There were no killer storms that took human life when God made it. There were no parasites. There were no diseases that ate people from the inside out when God made it. There was no such thing 
as the kind of sickness and corruption and damage. There's no such thing as carnivorous activity. We can watch on TV an animal gets run down by another animal and eaten alive while it screams on TV. None of that. What God had in mind when he rules looks very different from this world. And so this present age is evil. It's evil. And we've got to believe that. Some of us, all of us, deal with the subject of death, I believe, in some ways that are far less than Christian. Because we want to hang on to this world. And Paul says this world is a present evil age. It is not good. Paul said if I had my choice, I'd rather depart. I'd want to be out of here. But it's more needful for you that I remain. And so we're here. As our guest said this morning, we have this mission, we have this assignment, each of us, a purpose that you and I are called to fulfill in the midst of this present evil age. Secondly, this present age will be destroyed by the coming kingdom of God. This will be more clear in part three and as we get into the gospels and we listen to Jesus and we sit at his feet and listen to what he was saying. But this age... It's going to come to a close. It's not going to always be like this. And the world as he intended to be is going to be reformed and recreated. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. As we saw in Isaiah 11, this beautiful picture where he says the, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The lion will eat the lamb. The child will play by the adder's hole. The snake's hole can put his hand in there and won't be bitten. These accidents, these things that happen to us, none of that will happen. Why? Because when God rules, when God's will is perfectly expressed in our time, and our experience, in our space, none of that stuff happens. Number three, this present age is a danger to you because of your sins. Did you catch what he said? He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us or rescue us from this present evil age. It is our sins and this present evil age. It is our sins that binds us to this present evil age, that wraps us up, that immerses us in it, that causes us to think this is real and that other stuff, well, it's not real. And it is your sin, plural, sins, that binds you to this present evil age. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sins, yes, but he died so that he could rescue you from something that you don't need to be a part of. You don't need to be immersed in. And consequently, as you are growing in Christ, your mind and your life and your will and your emotions should increasingly contrast with the mind and the will and the emotions of this present age. And that's why we have this call for a kind of biblical separation from the world. That we are not to love the world. The love of, of the world, if we're filled up with that, John says later that the love of the Father is not in us. So I can't love both at the same time. And so as you and I experience the liberty of being forgiven, 
we also have this freedom to be in a totally different mindset and to have a totally different experience and a totally different perspective while we live right here. And then number four, this present age can be escaped only through the rescue of a Savior sent by a willing Father. Through the rescue of a Savior sent by a willing Father. It says that He came to deliver us, gave Himself for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age. And the last phrase is, according to the will of our God and Father. It was the heart of the Father that sent Jesus to give Himself for our sins so we could be rescued. It was his will, it was his desire, it was his initiative. He made the first move to rescue you and to rescue me. As you and I go from this place in a few moments, and I really don't want to give it all away, but I would hope you would understand where we're going with this. That if you're here tonight and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. And you belong to another kingdom right now. And God has called you to live under his rule right now. He's called you to seek his rule first, above everything else. He's called you to pray differently. He said, ask him. Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth right now where I live in my circumstances and the world can, that I can see. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven where I can't see, where I know you rule perfectly. Would you enter into my circumstances, Lord? Would you enter into my circumstances? Would you enter into my prayer? And Lord, would you rule? He is the king. And increasingly what we're going to understand is that he is the king and he has the right to rule. But you and I are called to ask him to come and to rule. To come into our circumstances, to give things to him, to spread things out before him and say, oh God, would you come? Would you come? Would you come? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Do you know the king? Do you know him? We're going to worship him here in just a moment. But if you've never come to him, surrendered your will, your life to him, if you've never come to him and sought forgiveness for your sins so that you could be set free, we want to give you an opportunity tonight to do that. You say, well, Pastor, i still got questions, and there's things that I don't understand, and there's some scriptures I need to read. Come. These guys are here. We've got our Bibles ready. They'll share scriptures with you. They'll help you understand. You can read it for yourself. How God wants to set you free if you'll put all of your trust in him. And then tonight, you may just need someone to pray with you, or you may need to pray. You can certainly do that right there in the pew as we sing, the rest of us sing, but you also can come and use the altar steps here at the front and just kneel quietly. Are you letting him rule? Have you asked him to rule? 
Are you opening up your needs and asking him to come into your needs? He is the king. He has the right to rule. Will you let him? Maybe you need to just take a moment during this worship time and just say, God, would you come? Come, Lord, please. I'm letting this go now. I'm not going to hang on to this need, this problem anymore. I'm going to bring it to you, Lord, and I'm going to lay it at your feet. Lord, would you come into my needs? Maybe there's someone you need to pray for, someone you need to intercede for, and they desperately need you to pray for them. Our Father and our God, as we worship you now, as we respond to you and what you have said, oh God, the one who is the only king, king of kings, Lord of lords, would you come into this place? Would you have your way among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand up?